Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've talked before about pathology as a global community and how the use of Twitter is making it possible for that community to interact more than ever. So with that global community in mind, my guest today is someone that I met through Twitter, Dr. Raquel Bittencourt. Dr. Bittencourt is a pathology resident in Brazil, and today we're going to talk about her experience in medical school and residency. We'll hear what she thinks about specimen grossing, and we'll talk about how she discovered pathology Twitter. All right, here's Dr. Raquel Bittencourt. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me, Dennis. It's an honor to be here. I want to talk a little bit about, because you're, you're in Brazil. And yes. so let's, let's start with that then. You're in the southern part of the country, is that right? Yes, I am the, in the south. What age were you when you decided that you wanted to become a doctor? Actually, Dennis, to be honest, I think I've never decided really that I wanted to become a doctor uh, per se. I just kind of went with the flow. And I think for you to fully understand how things happened to me, I think we would have to go back further in time, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. So uh, as a child, I was an avid learner and I just loved to learn anything really, but especially science and arts related subjects. So I would always be studying something by myself and learning something new. Um, for instance, growing up, I learned how to play the guitar, the electric guitar, some kinds of flutes, the piano, some singing and writing, all by myself. So you, you didn't take lessons for any of those things? You just learned on your own? Just the piano. I took piano lessons, but... For all of those other things, I never had any formal classes. Uh, in fact, I think this is the perfect time to tell you this is actually my first time ever speaking English out loud. Out loud. So you can expect a conversation heavy on Brazilian accent and some mispronouncing. So okay, you guys who are listening to the podcast feel like complaining, please. Feel free to blame Dennis on this. It's his fault. He's the one yes. who invited me. <laughs> That's right. It is it is my fault. I have to say though, you you speak English very well. Is that something common in Brazil? I mean, I know it's Portuguese is the language there, correct? Yes, it's Brazilian Portuguese. And no, I've noticed it's not very common for people to have this this eager to learn English. Although the basics are teached uh, at schools and in public, public schools and private schools, we learn just the basics like colors and numbers. And in medicine, we are always encouraged to learn English, but that's not, not very common, no. Okay. Okay. So then let's, let's get back to your story. Then you were saying as, as a child, you were learning music. Yes. So my journey started moving towards medicine when I was about 11 years old and I discovered the wonders of the brain and I became a brain fanatic. Of course, I would read very basic and simple material. I'm no genius or anything like that, but 
I think at the time, the years that followed, I would picture myself as an adult and, you know, wearing glasses and a white coat, working in a lab and making new discoveries in science. And if someone would ask me, I would say, yeah, when I grow up, I want to be a scientist. And that's really funny to, to realize because minus the white coat that I don't need to wear to work and minus the brand new discoveries in science, that's who I am today. I am an adult who wears glasses and works in a lab. So some of my childhood dreams did come true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, then in high school, I was kind of a rebel and I gave my parents and teachers kind of a hard time because I just didn't want to go to class. I would prefer to study at home and then just take the tests. My grades were never a problem. By the way, when I graduated, surprisingly, I ended up winning an award, a second place award for best grades or something. And oh, wow. yeah, it surprisingly, really. Okay. And I have another sister who was already in med school when I was a senior high. And she, uh, as opposed to me, she was pursuing with this amazing focus, her lifelong dream to become a doctor. And I was just the opposite. I was a 17-year-old weird, weird loner, nerdy rebel, and I had no idea what to do next. So I ended up applying for med school and computer science and electronic engineering. And I thought, well, I'll choose the one I passed the test for. And I ended up passing in, the, in the, those three majors, which made my decision a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. But looking back at it now, in retrospect, I think my sister had an important role here in my path. To know that I would have family around was a strong point in my decision. And medicine didn't sound that bad. I thought, well, I'll learn tons of different things and I'll get closer to know how the brain really works. And that's how I ended up in med school. It was, it was not a life mission or some superior calling or something like that. I just ended up there. Then did you go to the same medical school as your sister? Yes, I did. It was in a small city closer, close to home, and we shared an apartment, so it was very comfortable. Can we talk about how, what medical school is like in Brazil? Because it seems like it's a bit different than here in the U.S. For example, in the U.S. it's four years, and I think in Brazil it's six. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And you're absolutely right. I, I think med school in Brazil, I think for you to better understand why things are the way they are here, it would be interesting for you to know a little bit about our health system. We have okay. a wide, it's okay. We have a wide public health system called SUS, Sistema Unico de Saúde, which means universal health system. It's a program, it's a program paid by the government that theoretically guarantees free access to healthcare to everyone. So 
what we call the entrance door to that system are the basic basic care units. Those are healthcare units located in several points of a city, and those units are run by a primary care doctor. So as you can see, the basis of our healthcare system are the primary care doctors. And that's why our med school here discourages precocious specializing. We are encouraged to be the best general practitioners that we can possibly be. And we get out of college, indeed, with really strong clinical skills in, in general medicine, PEDS, and OBGYN. So it lasts six years. The first and second years, I think, that, that are the same all around the world, are focused on the basics, um, physiology, embryology, histology. And at the third year, there is this smooth transition where we move out of the classrooms and starting and start to enter the hospitals and the ambulatories and the basic care units. So the fourth year, we learned about some specialties like rheumatology, orthopedy, uh, orthopedics, sorry, um, neurology, psychiatry, pathology, radiology, with some complements like techniques in operation room, parasitology. The fourth year is we are frequently seen in hospital, in the hospital, in the surgical block, emergency room, and ICU, both adult and neonatal. And the last two years is what we call the intern years. We don't get to choose what we are going to do in those last two years. These two years are the theoretical classes are over. It's all practical. And these years are divided in emergency room, ICU, heavily on family medicine, on OBGYN and PEDS, both ambulatorial care and emergency care. Okay, now of those uh, specialties, which ones were your your favorite during during those years? I always try to honor that advice to become the best general practitioner that I could. And I always focused my studying and my training in what was asked for me at that semester. But at, I think, the third semester, I was already passionate about neurosurgery. So I saw plenty of surgeries, even helped in some. I would go to the hospital on Saturdays and Sundays to see the patients and the surgeries and I remember thinking, well, I've always loved the brain, so that makes sense. I think this is what I meant to do in my life, and I am meant to be a neurosurgeon. And then med school was over, and real life happened. <laughs> now, you mentioned during the, I think you said the third and fourth years was when you were first exposed to pathology, is that right? Yes, about the fourth year, if I recall right. The fourth year. Okay. And and what was that like? How was that? How was pathology presented to you, I guess? Was it just like lectures or did you spend time in the lab or, or, or what happened? Uh, really, I think the first 
At first and second year, we had histology, normal tissue histology. And I think that was the really first um, time I was exposed to pathology. And that really gone by without catching my eye so much. We had a lab, yes, but we just saw slides on the microscope and then studied the tissues and it was kind of forced, you know, and then over the years we had pathology presented to us in different systems. Each semester it would be a different system of the human body and normal and altered pathology. But we'd never spend time in a lab, in a pathology lab. It was just slides. Okay, I see. And it sounds like it really didn't make an impact on you at the time. Like it didn't, it didn't. you didn't find it very, not really, you didn't find it very interesting at the time. Yeah, it really just didn't catch my attention at the time. Okay. You know, one one other thing uh, about medical school in Brazil. So here in the U.S., there's a series of tests or exams that the students and then the residents have to take. So that's, it's the, called the USMLE. And I'm not, not a doctor, didn't go to medical school. I've never taken these, these exams, mm -hmm. but I've heard about them. So there's, there's three steps to them. Is there something that I guess the first step is like after second year and then this the second step is between third and fourth year. And then the third step is first year of residency. Is there something similar to that in Brazil that you have to pass these ex exams in order to move on? Yes, there is something similar called ENADI, which are two tests that some, some students get to, to pass by but it's not obligatory it's not something you had you have to to perform in to graduate it's not mandatory uh, it's just like a tool for the our ministry of education to evaluate how the medical schools are going and how the med students are going um, in the starting of the med school and at, at the end of the med school, but they are not a must and not every med student does this test. Okay, so it's more of a way to evaluate the, the school, how the school is, is doing rather than the individual students. Is that, is that yes. right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So then, exactly. all right, so then when was it then that you started to become interested in pathology? Well, when I graduated, I decided that I would work for a year or two, you know, save some money and pay my student debts and be near my family and my dogs who I missed so much. Okay. So I came, came back to my hometown to work as a general physician in a basic care unit and also in emergency medicine. And it seems obvious now that that equation wouldn't add up for me as I was always a shy kid and a lonely teenager and an adult with very low on social energy. <laughs> so it seems clear to me now, looking, looking back at it, 
that to attend close to 80 people per day was a recipe that would not taste good. And it didn't. So uh, although okay. I, am, I am very grateful and honored to all the patients that allowed me to take care of them, uh, it took a toll on me. I saved my share of lives and made my share of rare and difficult diagnosis, but I saw myself really unhappy. I think the intensity of the doctor-patient relationship was too overwhelming to me. I saw myself frequently sad and tired, anxious. When I wasn't working, I was sleeping. And that was when I realized clinical practice as surgical practice as well wouldn't fit me at all. And it was an intense year of much learning. It was a key year, I would say, to my journey and to where I am today. I learned a lot about medicine, healthcare, and about myself. So I decided in that same year, I decided to quit my job at the basic care unit. It was very emotional that day. And my last day of work, some patients showed up to say goodbye. They even signed up a document, a letter asking me to stay. But I just had to leave. A frustrated healthcare worker is never good for the patient. And that was what I was slowly becoming. Okay. So I was a little late in the year study-wise, but I decided that I would apply to some residency programs in that same year. So I had only two months before the, te the tests, but I managed to keep up a strict routine of studies and got approved to all the programs that I, I applied for, one of which, of course, was surgical pathology. Right. So what were the other programs that you applied to? I applied to radiology and forensic and legal medicine. Oh. So I was after a residency program that would have the least contact with patients after the year I have just went through. That's what kind of guided my decision to what residencies I would apply to. Okay. I understand. Now that's interesting because so here in the US pathology has sort of this and it, it's changing now but it has this reputation of being for those that are antisocial or like you said people mm -hmm. that don't want to deal with patients. Is it the same sort of reputation in Brazil? Yeah, I I it's it's like you said it's changing now but as when I was a first-year resident, for example, uh, almost all my colleagues were um, medical professionals that already had a specialty or worked as general practitioners and did not adapt that well. But as saying that pathologists are unsocial, I think that is... In my experience, not at all. Although in my case, that relationship with the patients was a little bit overwhelming. If someone wants to talk to me about 
a pathology case, be it a colleague or a patient, I would be absolutely delighted to do so. But I think pathology is a big part of that excitement because pathology is what I love to do. And at, at the end of the day, Brazilians will be Brazilians and most of us like to communicate. So, okay. and I, I also observed that my superiors who are very easy to reach by non-pathologists to discuss cases, for example. So although we sometimes can't handle very well with that doctor-patient relationship, when it comes to pathology, yeah, we love a good talk. Okay, that makes sense. And I have to agree with you. That's I, you know, I've worked with a lot of pathologists over my career so far, and that's my experience as well. They're not antisocial, and they're they're actually very friendly people and very knowledgeable and uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree right. with you. Okay, all right. So then, residency—that's is that two years then? Three years. Three Surgical years. Pathologist, three years. Okay, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. What is Kind of what what do you learn through those three years? What's the, sort of the program like? Well, in our first year, we must focus on grossing and necropsy pathology. Uh, necropsies, is that right? For the necropsy. entire year? Yeah. For the entire year. We have routines and we do a lot, tons of grossing, tons of necropsies, but we also... Um, get to see the slides that for of the specimens that we gross. So it's really general pathology with grossing and lots of necropsies. The second year we started start our contact with subspecialties, and then we do monthly rotations between those subspecialties. And in the third year, our volume of grossing, of grossing dimin diminishes. It okay. Okay. And then it's just more about specialties and general pathology and to really get that finesse of our abilities and our reports. Okay. So you're doing grossing all three years but the first year that it's it's pretty much all you're doing is that am I understanding that right? Yeah. Uh, do do you enjoy the grossing? Well, as I was as I told you, I was not familiar with what was the the day to day in a pathology lab, so I didn't know uh -huh. what grossing was. And I was quite impressed at first, but I must say, after a week or two, I started loving it. I mean, the surgeon inside of me screams of joy when I'm grossing. And I wish every program gave this importance to that part of the pathological examination, because really... What you see on, in the microscope is what you sample. If you, are not, if you are not sampling it right, you won't see it right, you won't report it right. So right. grossing is a really important, it's the really first step 
to a good pathology. And I think every pathologist should know how to do a good grossing. That's the way I see it. I love that you're saying that because uh, as, as I think I think I told you, so I'm a pathologist assistant here in the mm -hmm. U.S. and that's all that I do. Grossing is my entire job. So I love that you enjoy it. That 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 makes me happy. <laughs> and and I agree with you. There should be more of that. I think throughout residency. So all right. So I'm curious. Then what were of the specimens that you did some grossing? Did you have like some favorite types? Like for me, I like placentas and uh, hysterectomies and things like that. Do you, do you have favorites? I I had a favorite, and it. It's kind of controversial because none of my colleagues really like to, to do this specimen, but I, I really enjoy doing grossing columns. Really. Okay. Neoplastic columns. And oh, sure. finding the lymph nodes, it's kind of therapeutic, I guess. <laughs> I've heard that before, yes. Do you have a, <laughs> uh, like, what's your. What's your personal record for number of lymph nodes that you found? Oh my gosh. I think that would be 62. Okay. Okay. That's wow. That's really good. Another thing about the grossing then, because like, like I said, so I'm a pathologist assistant. Is there a position like mine in Brazil? Yes, that is. It's called, they are called macroscopists. And uh, they are oh, most. I like that. That's a good title. Yes, they are. They are called macroscopists, and they do pretty much what a pathologist can do in grossing. And grow, they gross since little biopsies to grade specimens like whipples and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, they are. Generally, I think biologists or majors in biomedicine, and that's two courses I would have to tell you that I know that can become um, macroscopists. Okay. And then what about things like um, frozen sections or autopsy? Do, they, do the macroscopists do those too? Then for necropsies, we have the necropsy technicians who help us with, with opening the body and separating the thoracic block and the abdominal block. And then the pathology really does the, the dissection of the organs when it's clinical necropsy, if it's a case of death that is suspicious in any way then it's not a clinical necropsy anymore it goes to the medical legal institute and there is a special kind of doctor that is the i wouldn't know how to translate it it's the kind of the forensic medical professional it's okay it, like a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner yes Okay. Yes. Thank okay, you. I understand. Okay. And frozen sections, 
In my residency program, we don't have uh, pathology assistants or macroscopists up there in the surgical blocks. It's just us residents and the pathologists. So we cut the samples, we freeze them, and we cut the... We make the slide, it's all us. Okay, I see. That, that sounds like that's good experience for you, though. Yes, it's. I think it's because, well, it's a learning hospital, so um, the residents get to do most of the things, but the macroscopists um, and the histotechnicians have a larger role, I think, when in private practice. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Raquel Bittencourt. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the US and the Royal College of Pathologists in the UK. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ConfLab expert. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Raquel Bittencourt on the People of Pathology podcast. So now I'm, I'm curious then, because it's impossible to have a conversation about anything these days without talking about COVID. What sort of effect did mm -hmm. the pandemic have on your program? I mean, did you have to switch to, you know, stay at home and do online kind of virtual learning or, you know, things like that? Like what happened? That that happened last year, but for a short peri period of time. So what I've noticed that changed the most is the number of specimens that come in. And so the, the number of grossing specimens arriving decreased a lot. So that's kind of bad for our, our new residents. Mm -hmm. But okay. I guess it's a two-side thing because it gives them time to more time to study their cases and to elaborate it, um, their reports. So it's a two-sided coin, I guess. And um, you as a PA must have noticed this too, uh, that the cancer specimens, they're there was a major change of profile of the the cancer the cancer spe specimens that we see. Yes. When I was at first year, for example, the columns were commonly PT2, you know, with tumor invading the muscular propria, but now the specimens are really large specimens with neoplastic cells just invading through the organ and 
invading, making a mess in the entire abdominal cavity. So our younger residents, although they are getting a little amount of specimens, these specimens are more, really more complex. Yes, you're right. I, I have noticed that as well. It seems like because things were shut down for so long, yes. the people were delaying uh, treatment and care. And now you're right, we're seeing specimens that are higher higher stage, which is I think is going to be a problem for a while. Exactly. In 2015 was kind of the height of the Zika epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, did that, and so you would have been in medical school at the time. Is that is that right? Yes, I was. Okay. Did that have an effect on the the program, your medical school program? That it really didn't, because because the cases were focused in the Midwest of Brazil and. Brazil is a really big country. Uh -huh. For those who don't know, um, Brazil is bigger like than Hungary, Germany, UK, Spain, Venezuela, and many more in terms of size together. So the Midwest is very, very far away from the extreme south where I did my medical school. So okay. I didn't get to see any cases or complications of the Zika virus. So I have, I don't have much information on that to pass on to you. Okay. It's interesting to me, at least, but that you mentioned the Midwest of Brazil, because I've never heard that term there. Although I live in the Midwest of the United States. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah, kind of is. <laughs> okay. You're in your last year of residency, is that right? Yes. And you're the chief resident. Yes, that's right. Okay. Now, how does it how does it work with pathology subspecialties then? Because you mentioned that you cover quite a few of those throughout residency. Um, have you given any thought to that? And and then what what do you do after residency? Is there like a additional like here you've got an additional year as a they call it a fellowship where you you study a subspecialty do you have that there too we do have that here but we don't have too many officially recognized subspecialties here and officially recognize additional years what we have officially is additional years for cytopathology, dermatopathology, and hematopathology. But nonetheless, we have renowned specialists, although they are not officially recognized as such. They are pathologists who have dedicated their pathologic life to study a subspecialty and are recognized as such subspecial subspecialists by the community, like soft tissue and bone pathology, OBGYN, pediatric pathology. We don't have additional years for that, but we do recognize that our pathologists that study those specialties more than some, and they are recognized by the, communi by the community as such subspecialists. Then for you personally, which 
so which specialty are you the most interested in? I find myself very fond of hematopathology for sure. Cytopath has a little space covered in my heart too, I think. Hematopathology okay. and cytopath are kind of alike. Of course, hematopathology gives you the architecture and the cytopath does not, but in hematopathology, the morphology of the cells, the individual cells are quite important as it is in cytopath. So those two are really my two favorites, but hematopathology for sure is, is the one. Those are both very, I don't want to say difficult, but complex specialties. So that, that's interesting. All right. The way that I came in contact with you was through Twitter. There's, as, as most people know, in the, at least that listen to this podcast, there, there's a huge mm -hmm. uh, pathology Twitter community and it continues to grow. How did you discover the use of Twitter for pathology? I discovered Twitter, I just must thank my teacher and supervisor, Raquel Rivero, for showing me the path Twitter world. I think it was when I was a first year resident, I had a necropsy case. It was a really tiny baby girl and with a really tiny heart. And I dissected that heart and managed to leave the article arch intact with all those, with all its branches. And then I snapped the picture and showed it to her. She's our chief of necropsy unity also. So I okay. showed it to her and she said, well, this is a well done job. You should post it on Twitter. And I said, well, I don't have one. And she said, well, so you must start because you don't know what you were missing. And indeed she was right. Yeah, absolutely. The Twitter is a great way to, like you said, share photos and in cases and information like that. And you can get uh, opinions from people all over the world, which is, which is really a lot of fun. I, I've actually, I've learned quite a bit from Twitter myself. What has, has been the most useful parts for you? Is it the sort of the international perspective or is it just kind of as a learning tool? Um, what, what kind of things do you like about it? Well, I find it so, so very helpful as a learning tool. We see cases that we wouldn't see otherwise, for example. But really what I found, what I find beautiful is how the PATH community cares about each other's learning experiences. We have amazing, famous even people, people and renowned pathologists answering the most simple questions with respect and enthusiasm. And we get to see the ones who write the books, which our reports are based on engaging in high-level discussions about new classifications or publications or techniques in grossing and biomolecular pathology. And perhaps even, even leave a comment and become a part of this amazing, respectful and enthusiastic group that is Path Twitter. So I think that exchange of knowledge 
is what I appreciate the most. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It's it's been it's been wonderful for me. I've I've been on there a, a couple of years myself, and it's amazing. Like you said, you can interact with world renowned pathologists and other lab professionals, and it's there's I don't think there's any other platform that allows you to do that that easily. Yeah, I agree with you. I just I never expected I would see something really people are really engaged in in teaching people yep. that they have never seen in their life before and just for the sake of pathology and good practice and for the sake of science and that is really touching yes yes absolutely agree dr pittencourt this has been really interesting i really enjoyed learning about about you and about your country. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dennis. This was a bit challenging for me, so especially the English part, mm -hmm. but I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great big thanks to Dr. Raquel Bittencourt, or uh, let me try this, Muto Abigado Adator Bittencourt. Okay, well, I'm sure i butchered that, but I mean, if she can talk to me in English for 40 minutes, I could try one sentence in Portuguese. Also, I will have a transcript of this episode translated into Portuguese. All right. So transcrito and Portuguese. Right now, I've got a trailer for you of my interview with pathologist assistant Heidi Wagner. With uh, the current uh, COVID pandemic, I imagine there's quite a bit of research being done on, on that. Uh, is that something that uh, would be biobanked as well, tissue from COVID-positive patients? Sure. So I um, was moved into, uh, received a promotion, I guess, in like the February of this year to head up the operations for UHN Biospecimen Services. And then like a week later, uh, COVID hit and uh, we were tasked with setting up a COVID biobank. And so we are not collecting um, tissue. The, the risk was just too high for, for, um, for individuals to be collecting uh, fresh tissue. However, we are collecting like fluid samples. And so we are positioned in emergency departments where we consent patients that are presenting with upper respiratory symptoms and, and collecting a time point zero for them. Um, then if they're transitioned to the ward or the ICU, we would have targeted time point collections for them as well. So we are now um, in our fourth month and we have approximately um, 250 patients consented and just over 10,000 specimens. You can hear more from Heidi Wagner in episode number 17. This episode was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed getting a perspective from someone in a different country. And honestly, I didn't know that Dr. Bittencourt hadn't ever spoken English before until we started recording. So uh, that sort of inspired me to try to learn a little bit of Portuguese. So thanks, Duolingo. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. And that's also where you can find the Portuguese transcript. Uh, I might not have that up on release day, but hopefully within the next week, it'll be there. And one more thing, 
The Pathologist magazine recently released the roundtable discussion called The Pandemic One Year On, which I was honored to take part in that. So I'll have a link in the show notes for that as well. You can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and maybe you know someone who's interested in Brazil, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. Muto obrigado. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.